Father, thanks for your word. We uh, come with grateful hearts and, and humble hearts, acknowledging before you that we need your help to understand what we read. And we need your spirit to teach us, to guide us, to convict us and change us. So would you have your way here this morning? Uh, we give you this time and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends. Hey, grab a Bible with me and uh, join me in James chapter two. You just heard uh, the first few verses of the chapter read. So James two, starting in verse one is where we're going to be this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to welcome you. We're so glad that you are with us. And, and hey, um, just, I forgot to mention this during the compassion announcement and prayer. We still, there are still kids that you can sponsor. If you were here last week, or even if you weren't and you're like, Ooh, I'd want to sponsor a child thought about it. And now I want to, or um, you can do so after the service at the blue table, there's more children in Togo, not in Daura. Uh, our specific village is 100% sponsored, but um, nearby there are other kids who need sponsors. So you can do that today if uh, that's been on your heart and you want to know more. Blue table in the back. So uh, with that, we're continuing our Love Your Church sermon series that we started last week, where for a few months now, we're looking at the joy and the privilege and the responsibility of being a part of the local church. What does God want to do here in us and through us? And just a reminder, we are uh, using a book of the same title as an extra resource. Uh, The sermons are kind of following along with the book. Our community groups are having discussions based off of the book. And so actually on your uh, sermon notes page that you got with the bulletin. On the back of that, it has the discussion questions that uh, the groups are going to be looking at this week. So you have a bit of a head start there. We want everyone to have a copy of the book. So if you don't, uh, and the welcome table in the back, there should be a few more copies. We want to get one of those in your hands so you can uh, follow along. You can read the book. You can read it before Sunday if you want. You can read it after the message. But again, this week corresponds with chapter two of the book called Welcoming, where we are going to talk about this morning being a welcoming church, which I must admit, when I looked at that, I was like, do we really need to spend a whole week talking about this? I mean, couldn't the idea of welcoming and hospitality uh, be fit under the umbrella of being like a loving church or, you know, serving or caring? Like, does it really need a standalone chapter, a standalone sermon? But the more I sat with it, uh, the Lord really showed me, yeah, uh, it does need its own week. And so I'm really glad that we're talking about it this morning because uh, we all have felt the sting of feeling unwelcome somewhere, haven't we? We all know the feeling of what it's like to not be welcome, the pain of, of someone showing favoritism or preferential treatment to someone else while we're left out or excluded or kind of get the raw end of the deal. Maybe it was when friends from school or from work or in your neighborhood got together for a party and your invite got lost in the mail. It hurts, right? Maybe it was when your boss at work favored your coworkers unfairly. Maybe it was when a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiance, a spouse even left because they favored someone else who was more exciting or put together or good looking or whatever it may be. At some point, right, we all know the pain of feeling cast aside in favor of another. And maybe we still carry that pain with us today. How devastating is it then when we experience that in the church? As we talked about last week, the church being a place of belonging, of love, of family, of welcome. 
I mean, it's one thing to be excluded or to be, uh, you know, cast aside out there in the world, but here, this place where we're supposed to experience the love of God and and the, the deepest fellowship possible. But some of us have stories about this, don't we? I remember, you've heard about my junior high days. I remember coming to know the Lord uh, at uh, summer camp in junior high. And I was part of a new church there. And I got saved and came to know Jesus. And uh, then was part of this youth group. But I was like new to the church. And so I was kind of on, on the fringes. And there were these like cool youth group kids who had grown up in the church and who knew one another. And they knew the pastors and the pastors knew them. And so they kind of got this attention, this treatment, this recognition that the rest of us didn't. And it kind of felt like we were on the outside looking in. Now, don't get me wrong, I I love my youth pastor still, and I love that church and and think well of that church, but that was a dynamic in the youth group that was difficult to work through. And so rather than going to counseling and processing my pain there, I'm just going to process it all in front of you all this morning. So thank you (laughs) for listening to me. Just kidding. I've, I've talked about it in counseling before. It's true. Right? The pain is real. So it's important then that we get a handle on this. Why is it so important to be a welcoming church? Why does this matter so much to God? We're using uh, James 2 as our guide. And you heard verse 1 already. Look at it again with me. Verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. We could stop there, right? One point sermon. Christians, don't show favoritism. Don't do it. It's pretty straightforward, Right? But there, of course, of course, is more to dig into. The book of James, a little bit of context. It's written about the middle of the first century by James, the half-brother of Jesus. If you thought growing up in your house was strange, imagine growing up with Jesus as your half-brother. Okay, it's a largely Jewish audience that James is writing to. Uh, James himself was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. So uh, he was influential, and this letter was influential, and it's very action-oriented. Right? If you read through it, it's all about living out your faith, putting it into practice. There are verses that talk about how faith without works is dead, right? Later in chapter two, it says that. Faith without works is dead. We have to put feet to our faith. We have to actually do something with it in order for it to actually be real. And so so the book is all about how our uh, life with Christ and our life as a church should be lived out in visible ways and how we treat people and how we talk about people and how we endure trials and how we trust God through it all. And in the context of the book of James, there was this tension specifically between the rich and the poor. And there were rich people in this community that were mistreating the poor, that were oppressing the poor, taking advantage of the poor. And they were proud and they were boasting. So James addresses this, how there's this sinful attitude of worldliness and wealth that even started to infiltrate the church. And so the first main thought for us this morning from the text is favoritism forbidden. Favoritism forbidden. James says really clearly, verse one, hey, believers must not show favoritism. Playing favorites is incompatible with Christian faith. Maybe your translation is talking about partiality. That's how that word is translated. Believers must not show partiality. If you read the Love Your Church book, chapter two, it talks about that Greek word there for favoritism or showing partiality in it. More literally is translated as receiving the face. Don't receive the face of someone, James is saying. 
which means don't, don't judge them and estimate them based on their presentation, how they look on their external appearance. Don't discriminate because of how they look or give preferential treatment on categories like wealth or good looks or social status or skin color. And he goes on to give an example. Verse two. He says, hey, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Pretty straightforward, right? He says, hey, I want you to picture a rich man coming into your gathering. Rich man comes to church, poor man comes to church at the same time. If you treat the rich man well, hey, have this nice seat. And it's probably going to be in the back row because we're back row Baptists and in Baptist church, no one likes the front row. So have this great seat, sit in the back row. You'll be comfortable here. Holla, Ben, represent. Uh, and you, you know, poor person, you come in. Well, you, you, uh, I guess the front row, you can go there. Or you stand over there. Or I guess we could find a way to squeeze you in or not really, you know, that concerned about you being here or even sit at my feet like a servant, the text says. If you do that, it says you're showing favoritism. This is sin. He says you become a judge with evil thoughts, verse four says. Not just like, oh, just a small oversight. Evil thoughts. And we do this usually because we think of how it will benefit us, right? I want to flatter this person or become or be in their good graces because they can do something for me. Especially in an honor-shame culture, right? You wanted to honor those who were worthy of honor. Wealth brought honor. It was expected that wealthy people would be recognized, You wanted to uh, be on their good side because wealth also brought power and influence. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know? In the ancient world, uh, it was good to know a rich person because they could take care of you. They could help you, perhaps. It paid to know wealthy people. In fact, Roman laws even explicitly protected the wealthy making it difficult or even impossible for the poor or for lower classes to bring legal cases and accusations against those who had wealth. And so Christians in the first century might be tempted to think, hey, it'll be really good for us if we buddy up with this guy, right? If we could be friends with him, it'll benefit us. We'll gain his favor. While this poor person, humanly speaking, right? They're not that valuable to us. Pay no attention to them. They can't benefit us a whole lot. And we still do the same thing today, right? The specifics might differ, but that same heart of favoritism, we're tempted towards it. I want to flatter this person. I want this person to like me. I want to be uh, in their good graces. And we value people not based on how God sees them, right? Made in the image of God, worthy of value and love and dignity and honor. No, we see them based on how they can benefit us in a couple of different categories, right? Of course, with wealth, same same thing, same almost one-to-one parallel, right? Those today who have money, well, they can give to support the church. They can help the budget. We want to keep them around. Also as friends, they're, yeah, maybe they're fun, they're low maintenance, we can go on fun trips with them, right? They have their affairs are all in order, so they're not going to cost us much to be friends with them, right? 
They're not necessarily going to ask. They're not very needy. They're not going to ask a lot of me. Whereas those who are comparatively poor, maybe it's going to take more of our effort or energy to care for someone in that situation. We see the same thing with with race, with other external factors, right? Racial tensions have been highlighted the past few years in our country. The church isn't immune, how sometimes we gravitate towards those who look like us. It's easier to welcome people who look like us or talk like us or sound like us because it takes work to understand people who are from a different culture, a different background, speak a different language, have a different story. We do this with age, Right? Some churches really celebrate young people. Young people are exciting. And, and, and the future and, and, and old people, well, we're going to kind of ignore our older members. Or other churches will do the opposite. And they'll celebrate older believers because they have money and they maybe share more of our preferences, unlike the young people we don't understand. What's a TikTok anyways, right? So that's just, they're too difficult. Let's just ignore young people. They're too much work and, and they don't, you know, they're annoying or whatever, right? It goes, it goes both ways. Young and old looking at each other differently. We could go on. We do this with affinity, right? Based on our interests. We do this with, oh, this person, they, they kind of got a vibe about them that I think we're going to get along, right? They're kind of maybe in my political tribe. They maybe vote like me or think like me. I don't know if that's my phone. I'm turning it off. We do this with uh, familiarity, right? People who are new, it's a little easier because we have a comfort level with new people. And so it's harder to welcome outsiders in, right? You read, if you read the book, Love Your Church, Chapter 2, it talked about how a uh, established couple at a church saw a new person in their seats on a Sunday morning. I know. And they said to them, hey, you're in our seats. Go find another. True story. Now, I rarely condone violence. (laughs) But that might be a situation where someone needs to be slapped in the name of Jesus. Right? How, what in the world? I mean, how could that be our response? Or what should our response be if someone's new, someone who we don't know, someone who uh, maybe it's their first time here, someone who doesn't look like us, and they're in our church sitting near us? Shouldn't our response be, we are so glad that you are here, and I would gladly inconvenience myself so that you could be more comfortable here. Right? And so in all these different ways, based on external appearances and how things look, we show favoritism for the same reasons they did it back in the first century that James is addressing. We think it'll benefit us. It'll make things easier for us. We'll be more comfortable. This sort of person, right, however you define that, they're going to be nice to keep around. Not a lot of work, brings certain social benefits, whereas this sort of person, however you define that, well, they're going to make me uncomfortable. They're going to require more of me. And so we're less than warm. So James verse one, chapter two, verse one says, hey, this is a problem when Christians show favoritism. But he doesn't just leave us with the command, hey, don't do it, although that would be enough. But he goes on to help us understand, hey, here's why this is such a big deal. Here's why this makes no sense for Christians to live this way. And so for the rest of the text, um, in, in our morning, we're gonna talk about, point number two, forsaking favoritism. Forsaking favoritism. How do we... Forsake it. How do we move past it? If we're convicted that we operate in this way sometimes, how do we change? This similar ideas were shared throughout the book, chapter two, but I've kind of changed the wording a little bit and repackaged it, but the same ideas are there. First, 
A few things we need to remember. To forsake favoritism, we need to first remember God's grace. We need to remember God's grace. We see this in verse five. Look at it with me. It says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Listen, guys, he says, God, hasn't he chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom? In other words, he's saying, hey, your wealth, your social status has nothing to do with you being welcomed by God. God has, in fact, made the poor rich in faith. Actually, wealth can sometimes often get in the way of us trusting God and walking with him faithfully. So God has extended grace to people. Grace is a word that means unmerited favor. God's favor is given to those who do not deserve it. We didn't work for it or earn it. Our value before God is not about what we bring to the table. Paul in 1 Corinthians says something similar at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, hey, not many of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth or influential when God called you. When you got saved, you weren't chosen and saved by God because you were impressive and influential and affluent and put together. That's not why God saved you. God didn't look down at his plans for the world and start wringing his hands and say, man, we really got to get some powerful people on Team Jesus. We really got to get some celebrities on board. I really hope Tim Tebow works out. I really hope we got him on our team because we need some influential people. So this Jesus thing will really take off because it'll look cool and flashy and exciting. And then maybe other people will believe not how God did it. He says, no, I'm going to show my power and my glory by taking a bunch of nobodies, transforming their hearts and lives, and then changing the world through them. That's how God chooses to work in the world, right? He chooses nobodies who don't deserve his grace. We read of God's grace throughout the New Testament. We see it in Ephesians 2, 8. We reference this verse often. Ephesians 2, 8, you're saved by grace through faith. And it goes on to say, this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It's not from yourself. It's the gift of God. There's a a British conference, you know, decades ago, maybe you've heard about it. They were comparing religions and trying to understand what is the unique contribution of Christianity in on the world religion scene. What's different about Christianity? What's different about Jesus? And it's all these scholars. This is, uh, again, back a couple of generations ago. And they're trying to figure out. And C.S. Lewis, our beloved friend, enters the room. And he was invited. And they're like, hey, here's what we're talking about. Here's the question. What makes Christianity unique? And he says, oh, well, that's, that's easy. It's grace. He says, it's grace. It's this idea of unmerited favor. So you look at the other world religions, think about the, the Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma that we kind of like will throw around today. Oh, it's karma, right? Like if you received it, it must mean you earned it. Things like that. Um, the Muslim code of law, even secular approaches to spirituality, it's climb the ladder. Each of them offer a way to earn approval. And only Jesus offers salvation not based on what we earn. It's called grace. 
So step one in forsaking favoritism is remember God's grace. Remember how God has welcomed you. But isn't that one of the most foundational questions? One of the most fundamental questions that we can ask is how were you saved? How does someone get right with God? How did you, of all people, find a place in God's family? You weren't saved because you showed up with a nice, strong resume and stood out among the crowd. No, you're a piece of work, probably. You're not easy to love. I'm not easy to love. You're probably sitting on your car drive over here, right? And, and, and yet, God, <laughs> I, you know, I'm with you. And God, though, is rich in mercy. And in his kindness and in his love, he welcomed us into his family through the work of Jesus, who paid it all, right? We just sang about it. All to him I owe. We come empty-handed. We were weak and powerless and poor and ungodly. And God, in his grace, saved us. He sent his son to die for us, to do everything for us, so that if we would simply put our trust in him and repent, we would receive the gift of salvation. He said, come on in. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to care for you not because of the benefit you give to me. It's actually quite costly to love you. Yet he does so anyways. So do you see how that simple gospel message should transform how we view and relate with other people? God welcomed me. God was gracious with me. God was patient with me. He loved me with a costly, sacrificial love. And I want to be like my father. Right? And so I want to turn around and extend that same welcome and grace and love to others, even if it's costly. And yet, sadly, sometimes in the church we forget, rather than the church being the epicenter of grace in the world, uh, we miss it. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace a couple decades ago, which is where he just unpacks this idea of, of grace and how astounding it truly is. And he writes in his book of Ernest Hemingway, the uh, famous American author, and how Ernest Hemingway was not a believer, uh, but his parents were devout Christians. His grandparents were devout Christians. They went to Wheaton College, great school. Um, but his mother... Hemingway's mother couldn't stand his immoral living, his libertine ways, and she basically uh, cast him off and refused to see him because she was so disappointed in him. Later in life, she wrote him a letter and she told him basically, hey, your duty as a son now is essentially to pay me back for all that it cost me to raise you. You got to refill the bank account, so to speak. And she listed, here's some ways you can do that. You can start buying me flowers. You can start bringing me candy. You can pay some of my bills if you want. You can stop living your sinful, immoral life. Like, get it together, man. Pay me back. Think about this, this devout Christian mother who basically says to her son, you know what? You were a ton of work. You owe me. It's time to pay me back. So get to it. I mean, she, a devout Christian mother, I'm sure she could explain the doctrines of grace. I'm sure she could explain the Bible passages that talk about God's grace towards us, and yet she somehow so missed the boat on extending grace to her family. 
Swiss doctor Paul Tournier writes about, Yancey mentions this in his book again, how graceless religion can crush people. How people come to the church and he, he talks with many of them who are harboring guilt over past sin. Whether it be abortion or divorce or sexual promiscuity or whatever, and they're seeking grace. And yet they come to church and they find judgment and shame and threats rather than right, a loving welcome and forgiveness and the grace of God. That God can cleanse us and forgive us from all our sin if we come to him. So we need to remember God's grace. Next, we need to remember God's kingdom. This one's similar, but remember God's kingdom. Same verse, verse five. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? So James, again, is telling us about grace, but he's also telling us about how the kingdom of God works. Perhaps you've heard the kingdom of God referred to as an upside down kingdom, right? Where the value system seems to be inverted from how the rest of the world operates. Jesus himself said, right? Blessed are the poor and blessed are the meek and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart. And so James here is tying into that saying, hey, the poor in the eyes of the world are going to inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the poor. What matters in the kingdom of God is not worldly wealth, but what? Being rich in faith. There's a whole different value system at play here, right? What counts in the kingdom? Well, faith. It says the kingdom, verse five, is promised to those who love him. So loving God, right? That matters. But that's not how uh, the worldly system of values works, right? Yancey writes this in his book. He says, For, uh, from nursery school onward, we are taught how to succeed in the world of ungrace. The early bird gets the worm. No pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Demand your rights. Get what you pay for. Right? He said, I know these rules well because I live by them. I work for what I earn. I like to win. I insist on my rights. I want people to get what they deserve. Nothing more, nothing less. That's how the world works, right? You get what you pay for, right? Work for it, earn it. No pain, no gain. No such thing as a free lunch. In a lot of ways, uh, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, right? You reap what you sow. In a lot of ways, that's how the world works. The problem where we go wrong is when we apply that principle to our standing before God. When we apply that principle to our value before God in the kingdom and how we then should value other people. So when we bring that same uh, counting system, that same estimation into the kingdom, we're just operating how the world has trained us to think. In the world, you get what you deserve. But in the kingdom, you get what you don't deserve. I always remember Pastor Francis Chan telling the story one time of uh, his daughter when she came home with a bad report card. Parents ever been there? She comes home and she's just like terrified. She's like, in our, in our family, like we do not mess up grades. Like we get good grades. And so she comes home, she's like, my dad's going to kill me. Like he's going to be so upset. I'm going to be grounded. There's going to be consequences. This is not going to go well. And so she brings the report card home and shows it to her dad. Dad, here's my report card. I know it's not good. 
What are we going to do? And he looks at it, he thinks, and he says, here's what we're going to do. I want you to pick a friend, call him up. We're going to go pick him up. We're going to go out to ice cream, and we're going to have a good time. We're going to do what, Dad? He said, we're going to go call your friend, pick a friend, we'll pick him up, we'll go have ice cream, we're going to have a good time. Uh, you're seeing the same report card I'm seeing, Dad, right? This, uh, I, I don't deserve ice cream. He says, I know. You don't deserve it, but I want to give it to you anyways. I want to teach you about grace. That's what we get when you have a pastor for a dad. <laughs> Object lesson, I'm going to teach you about grace, he says, and how things work in the kingdom. Now, parents, I encourage you, have fun with your kids next time. Maybe try this. Try this. Surprise your kids with grace. Homework assignment. Next time they come home with, with a bad report card or they really mess up, I don't know, they wreck the car or they go to prison for the night. Well, I don't know. Whatever. Next time they do something and they know, like, they got to be repentant. They got to be, they got to know it was bad, right? And they come to you like, my parents are going to kill me. Surprise them with grace. Be like, let's go get ice cream. Let's go, or I, or I don't know, go on Amazon today. Buy like a gift that they want, right? Go buy something on Amazon and just be ready to give it to them. Wait for that moment, right? Uh, and surprise, wouldn't that be fun? And, and I'm, not, I'm not advocating for permissive parenting or enabling or go with the villagers. Yeah, yeah, I don't care. There's no rules in your house. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this one time. Just surprise them with grace. I bet it will stick with them for a long, long time. Because we know how the world works, right? We reap what we sow. We, we learn that but there's not enough grace displayed in the world. So the kingdom is like this because this is what the king is like. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 17 tells us God shows no partiality. God's not bribed or swayed by influential people. He sees the heart. And throughout scripture, you see that God has a special care for the poor, the fatherless, the orphan, the widow. God has a special care and concern for those who are in need, those who are vulnerable, those who often are taken advantage of. Saying the world might discard you, the world might see you as a burden, but here you are valued, here you are loved, here you are seen as a child of God. So remember God's grace, remember God's kingdom. And lastly, remember God's command. Verse eight, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So verse eight and nine, he's saying, if you show favoritism, you sin, you're, you're breaking the law of God. You're breaking his command to love your neighbor. And he goes on to say, actually, in verse 10 and 11, hey, if you even keep the whole law but stumble at one point, you're still guilty as a lawbreaker. As if you've broken all of it, he says, right? In verses 10 and 11. So we're not graded on the curve here. It's not like you can just say, like, well, I didn't kill anybody. You know, I didn't do some of this or that. Um, I just showed a little favoritism. What's the big deal? He's saying, no, if you've broken one part of the law, you're guilty as a lawbreaker before the judgment seat of God. And so this matters as well. Jesus has commanded us to be people of love. 
And love doesn't pick and choose who is worthy. It doesn't value a rich person more than a poor person. Love doesn't show favoritism. If we love people, then we're not going to base our interactions with them based on what we get out of it. Right? That's not love. I mean, it's fine to run a cost-benefit analysis in uh, plenty of decisions in your life. We'd be wise to do so, but not with people and whether or not we will love them. The other night, uh, Amber and I were watching one of our favorite shows. It's called Shetland, BBC, crime drama based over in Scotland. Any Shetland fans in the house? What's up? All right. So season seven, here we go. Um, So we're watching it and we were ready for some popcorn in the evening. We like to have some popcorn as we're watching our show. And so I get a microwave bag of popcorn ready to go. And Amber says, no, let's make the Whirly Pop tonight. Any Whirly Pop fans in the house? Okay, a couple. All right, so you, for those of you that don't know, the Whirly Pop, it's like a stovetop, you know, aluminum, metal, I don't know what sort of material it is. It's a little thing you put on the stove, and you put the, the kernels in, and you put the oil in, and then you crank it, and you're sweating in the kitchen, and you're cranking your popcorn, and then it pop, 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 and it all pops, and then you get to eat it, and it's great. And it objectively tastes better than microwave popcorn, right? It's fresher, it's, it's great, but it's kind of a lot of work, and so I don't always, like, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to go through that, I just I'll get my microwave bag of popcorn and be content with that. But Amber said, no, let's do the whirly pop. And I said, lovingly, fine, make it if you want it, but I'm not doing it. Um, and yeah, true story. And so she made it. And, and let me tell you again, it's, it's better than microwave popcorn. But I, what I did was I ran a cost benefit analysis. I'm like the, the cost, the time, the energy, the effort it's going to take to make this is not worth it to me. Uh, when I could spend way less time, energy, effort and still get a pretty decent outcome, the microwave popcorn. Now, I may or may not have been accused of being lazy, uh, but it's a simple cost-benefit analysis and it wasn't worth it to me. Now, that's how we make all kinds of decisions, right? What will this cost me? Whether it's an experience, an item, a, whatever, how much time, energy, money, effort is this going to cost me? It's whatever it is. And then is it worth it, right? Is, how much is the benefit? And then based on that, we make our decisions. Like, well, is it, should I do it that way? And that's fine to do when it comes to popcorn, but it's a really bad idea to do that when it comes to people, okay? When it comes to people in the church, if we're to love them, it means that we don't operate with them and interact with them based on a strict cost-benefit analysis. And if it puts me in the red, then I'm out, Right? Sometimes we're called to love people and it's going to put us in the red. The cost-benefit analysis, the math doesn't really add up for us. And yet God says, I want you to love them anyways. That's what love is, is willing to sacrifice and care for the good of another. To say to them, you're worthy of love. You're made in God's image. I'm going to love you even if it costs me something. So, chapter two, we're called to be a welcoming church. Right? to forsake favoritism. So an action step to put this to practice, not just, hey, good ideas, but, but to put it into practice is to, this week, find a way to take a step towards someone who is different from you. Maybe it's simply after church, going out of your way to find someone who's new or that you don't know, or maybe seems like they might not know many people here and be a friend to them. Welcome them in. Move towards them. Maybe it means having someone over to your home for dinner that you wouldn't otherwise or normally have over. Opening up your home to them. Maybe it means opening up your small group to them, extending invitations to your small group. Because we get territorial with our small groups sometimes, don't we? 
got our little secret club. Doors are closed. Sorry. This is for us. Shouldn't we open our arms up to those who need community? I think that's what Jesus would have us do. When we come on Sunday, we would not show up just thinking about, well, what do I need? Right? And this is about me. And I'm going to see my friends and talk with them after service. But how can I be aware of people who have needs around me and welcome them in? And now you're all thinking, well, if I get an invite to something this week, what does that mean? They think about me. But do it anyways. I mean, think about it. What, would the, what would it be like if the disciples, the 12, would have said, like, we, we got our little small group. Like, we are good. You know, close the door. We're just going to love one another. And we'll share, you know, we'll be nice to the world around us. But we're not going to invite them into belonging. What would that mean for us? So find a way. Take a step to move towards someone that you wouldn't normally and welcome them in. Now, we talked earlier about uh, the key in all this is remembering God's grace and what he's done for us. And that's exactly what we have a chance to do as we take communion together. And so hopefully you got the elements when you came in. Uh, We take these elements as a reminder of the work of Christ, his broken body for us, his shed blood for us on the cross and for our sins. This is the basis of our identity, of our uh, life as a part of the family of God, our personal life with God and being a part of his family. It's also this table, these elements that unite us as a church family. We are all one in Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, they say. We all come needy. We all come needing the, the finished work of Christ, his righteousness given to us. It's the only way to draw near to God. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray, give us a chance to pause, reflect, and then we'll take the elements together. We practice an open table here at FBC, which simply means we invite uh, anyone who is a follower of Jesus to participate with us. So even if this isn't your home church or you're from out of town or whatever, you're uh, invited to participate if you are a follower of Jesus. And if that's not you, if you're here this morning and that's not you, you can simply uh, leave the elements where they are and, and reflect on what we've talked about this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, uh, again, needy and humble and aware of what it cost you to love us and save us. Jesus, you died on the cross. You, You gave yourself for us. You bore our sins and our shame and all the consequences and punishment of our sin you took upon yourself. So thank you for dying for us. Thank you for your broken body and shed blood. And we remember this morning that it's on that basis and on that basis alone that we are saved and that we can draw near. Thank you for radically welcoming us. Help us then extend the same kind of love and welcome to those who come through these doors to be a truly uh, welcoming church family. Help us, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. 
So this cup is a new covenant in my blood, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.